910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back as we continue in our series, Be Transformed. We started out last week with an intro to this series saying that the top three New Year's Eve resolutions were exercise more, lose weight, and get organized. And Rose, I could use all three of those things and pretty much trying to get more of that done and more of that in my year. This time of year, most of us make those kind of resolutions. And for Christians, resolutions often include spiritual disciplines like reading our Bibles or praying more or sinning less. And perhaps one of the biggest resolutions that I hear Christians make is they want to have more faith. And often, regardless of having the best intentions, many of us at some point end up dropping the ball on some or all of those resolutions, sometimes not even making it that far into the new year. And Chris, there's a reason for that. That's because when we approach it as a checklist of things we need to do, it's all about what we do. But that's not how we should approach any of those things that you mentioned. No, it's not. R.C. Sproul said, everything begins and ends with our view about God. Amen. Yeah, he hit the nail on the head. And the way we do pray more or sin less or increase our faith isn't by striving in our own strength. It's by upping the object of those things that we're trying to do. We need to elevate our view of God. We need to see God as he truly is. Absolutely. You know, for the Christian, our salvation brought about an initial change. We were made a new creation, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17. But as we said in the last episode, true transformation, our sanctification, comes with the help of the Holy Spirit and with hard work. The Spirit is helping us transform, but we need to be cooperating with the Holy Spirit in our transformation. And that's where the hard work comes in. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. Our theme verse for this series is Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We suggest that you memorize that verse. In fact, we're going to suggest a verse or two to memorize in each episode, and we'll post those memory verses on the homepage of the Proverbs 910 Ministries website. And our theme verse, Romans 12, 2, comes on the heels of Romans chapter 11 that ends with a doxology, and I'll read that doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the end of scripture. You know, this doxology is a great reminder of how great God is and how insignificant we are. And that's a very important concept to grasp. That doxology also gives us our overarching purpose for life, glorifying God. That doesn't mean that we're making him glorious. He is glorious. We're just supposed to reflect that glory to show to others just how glorious he is. 
And it's something that should be in the forefront of our mind, not on the back burner where we only think about it once in a while and do it once in a while. But often that's where it's at. Yeah. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If it was Jesus's aim to glorify the father, and we see him say that several times, one place is John 12, 28, where he says, father, glorify thy name. Then that should certainly be our aim too. Remember, we're trying to more and more resemble our savior. And you're right, Chris, we absolutely should not put it on the back burner. But the truth is most of us do. So what can help us ignite that passion, the same passion Jesus had to give the glory to God the Father? Well, Rose, I think we can take a lesson from the angels for that. First Peter 1, 10 through 12 tells us that the prophets who prophesied about our salvation searched and inquired, trying to find out more about God's salvation plan. And that same verse goes on to say, that the angels long to look into those things. If the prophets wanted to look into the salvation God was making known through them, and the angels actually long to do that, what might happen if we started spending time looking deeply at God saving us? We are a wretched bunch of sinners. And what would happen if we meditated on that and the fact that God saved us on a regular basis? We all know the sin that we've been forgiven of. It's humbling, to say the least, to think about it. I was listening to a sermon by Paul Washer this week, and it said, if you look at the cross, you'll see God's attributes all in that one place. You'll see that God is holy and just and merciful and righteous and that he is love, all of them. So we're going to start our transforming this year by looking at some of God's attributes and the ways that we can and may already be glorifying him and ways that we don't glorify him or might not be glorifying him according to those attributes. Okay, well, let's get started. The first attribute we're going to look at is that God is eternal. God has no beginning or end. And Chris, when I was little in Catholic catechism, I told the nun that I really had trouble believing this. And she slapped me and said, just believe it. You deserve to be slapped. <laughs> probably not for answer asking that, but probably for many oh. other things. But it is a hard concept to wrap your mind around. And so it's one of those things that we just accept yep. because our finite minds can't possibly comprehend it. So right. how do we glorify God in light of his eternity? We do it by showing that we have complete faith and trust in him. Do we question what we see happening in the world? Do we say things like, I can't believe that God allowed fill in the blank? You know, for some of us, it's a habit to say things like that, but we really need to stop because those are actually opportunities, especially in front of non-believers or even fellow Christians to show our faith and trust in God, regardless of anything that's going on around us. I 100% agree. You know, since God is eternal, who are we to question him at all? When Job was questioning God, God humbled him with a bunch of rhetorical questions asking, where was he? I mean, where was Job? Where were you at creation? And when God was finished talking, all Job could say was, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. 
I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no more. I mean, yeah, that's how we should answer God. That's right. And what else would we say in those Mm -hmm. situations? And that goes for even times when we're being afflicted. Even then, we need to remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And it's hard to wrap our minds around, but we have to think that big. We really do. Okay, so the next attribute that we're going to look at is that God is sovereign. In light of thinking deeply about our salvation, we glorify God when we acknowledge that we come to him totally empty-handed and respond with total thankfulness. If you're somebody who's put their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you did that because God chose you to be saved before the foundation of the world, as it says in Ephesians 1.4. Yeah, that means a wretch like you was predestined for adoption by God before he even created the world. That's right, a wretch like me. And as we said last week, it's not that your decision on earth from an earthly perspective wasn't big. I mean, it's the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life. But God was sovereign over all of it. You came because he elected you, like you said, Chris. And that's a key truth to grasp and meditate on And one that should spur us on to glorify God. We don't do anything at all, anything at all, except bring our sin and our need to deserve salvation. All the glory goes to God for saving us. That's why the Arminian idea that we're all free to choose God falls woefully short of producing thankfulness and glory to God. You know, if you think you did one little thing to help save yourself, like you made the right decision, You found Jesus. You grabbed the life preserver. Even if you think God did 99.9% of the saving and you did your 0.1%, you're taking some of the credit for it. You're robbing God of some of his glory. Chris and I are doing a devotional this month called None Else by Joel Beakey. It's excellent. In it, he quotes Martin Luther, who debated many people. One was Erasmus, who held on to the Arminian belief. Luther told Erasmus, Your thoughts concerning God are too human. And we need to think about and make sure that that's not true of us. I could not have said it better than Martin Luther did. Yeah, I mean, it was 100% God and 0% us. And when I think about that, I think there's no wonder that the angels and the prophets longed to look into God's plan of saving sinners. I'm sure it seemed above and beyond amazing. And I can't even think of the right words to say that God saves any of us. Yes. And I would have been saying, smite them. Smite them. (laughs) I know, you know, when he did the flood, I'd be like, all right, let's just do a reset here. See if we can get something better. I agree. I would have. And so I can see why they're amazed and I can see why they long to look at that. Yes. God's attribute of sovereignty is displayed in his eternal decrees, like his electing some to salvation. But it's also displayed in the day-to-day providences 
as described in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which says, his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So, Chris, another way we glorify God is when we don't try to explain away how things work out, but instead give him the glory for working out the details. When we say we've had good luck or the universe smiled upon us or by chance this happened or, wow, wasn't that fortunate, we sound like the world. And I will say I am on my kids all the time when they say any of these things and I'll say, no such thing as luck, no such thing as chance. Because we need to give the credit and the glory where it's due. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It is so hard to break these little idioms that we are so used to saying. But But by doing it, we will see a change in ourselves. We will. And it glorifies God that we're making that change. It does need to happen. Yes. It does. It really does. It's not a little thing. So there's one other way that some Christians are not glorifying God in relation to his sovereignty and his providence. And that is when they declare things. Only God declares what's going to happen. He's ordained and decreed all that's going to happen. He is God. We are not. I'm going to use an example here. Think of it this way. Do you let your children run your household? If your three-year-old stood up on a chair tonight and declared that they were no longer going to bed until they decided it was time for bed, what would you do? <laughs> I know what I would have done. <laughs> and this, is, this makes it seem fool, as foolish as it really is to, to declare things. What if you had two children and they both declared opposite things? Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, the heart of a man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. Not only is decreeing and declaring foolish, it's sin. And that's exactly why moral relativism is basically a license to sin. Yep. Because it's people making their own shots, you know, calling their own shots, declaring their own stuff. Yep. So the next attribute is that God is omnipotent. We worship an omnipotent, powerful, mighty God. And we glorify him when we act like we know that. You know, when we're under pressure, how do we react? Do we have a peaceful and quiet spirit? When everyone is freaking out around us, what's our demeanor? Are we the calming force in the room? Are we the one that pulls everybody in and calms them down? Psalm 121, 1-2 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the rest of the psalm builds on that. And there's countless other verses like those. And we're going to look at a few in the next episode. So let's remember who we belong to, how powerful he is, and especially when the unbelieving world is falling to pieces. Don't be like them. Be different. We worship a powerful God who can even raise the dead. So if that's not a reason to be calm amidst the storm, I don't know what is. I know he can raise the dead and he created the heavens and the earth. I mean, don't get more powerful than that. No, he can handle whatever's going on right now. Yep. Okay. The next thing we're going to look at is God is omnipresent. So how do we glorify God in his omnipresence, which means that he is everywhere all the time. Which is something Satan isn't. People sometimes don't realize that. 
That's a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up because people act like Satan's everywhere, messing with you and messing with me too, even though you're up there in Bloomsburg and <laughs> I'm down here in Lancaster County with the Amish and can't be both places. No, he has demons, but he can't be everywhere. And That's neither right. can I. Nope. So, all right. So how do we glorify God in his omnipresence? Well, by knowing and trusting that God is near to us at all times, everywhere, and in every circumstances that we are. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It doesn't matter where we're at or what's going on, though. God is right there with us. When I think about glorifying him, I think that the martyrs going to their deaths must have felt that presence. They must have truly believed in that and clung to that. I, every time I read that verse, I, that's what I think of. Me too. Um, and you talk about glorifying God. They had to have felt his presence as they were being killed. I think it's Stephen I mean, who looked up to heaven, you know, and, yeah. and saw. And, and I think that's yeah. probably the experience of a lot of them. I, I think so, too. And there's another aspect of God's omnipresence, though, that we need to talk about and us glorifying him that we need to mention. It's a little bit ouchy for some of us. Do we act like he is everywhere, even at home when we're alone? Or do we act like that at church or when, when we're with our Christian friends? You know, I mean, if he's everywhere, he sees everything and we're to glorify him in all things. So that's just kind of a little wake up call there, yes. you know, that we need to keep in our mind. Psalm 139 verse two says, God knows when we sit down and when we rise up, he discerns our thoughts from afar. And Proverbs 5.21 says, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Good point, Chris. Something to really keep in mind. Another attribute, which is kind of an obvious one, is that God is wise. Romans 11.33 says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You know, it, it should be obvious that God is wise, yet people act like, they're more wise. But how do we as believers glorify God's wisdom? We do it by obeying him, by trusting that his ways are the best because he does know best, not us. All we have to do is read through the book of Proverbs to see that there's two ways to live, the wise way and the foolish way. And guess which one's the foolish way? That's going on our own wisdom. Ours? <laughs> we can follow lady wisdom or we can follow lady folly. So we glorify God when we obey his precepts and don't lean on our own understanding and don't try to interpret things that, well, maybe God didn't really mean this because that's a big thing, trying to change scripture. Well, that's not what God meant. He meant that 2000 years ago, not now. But that's just not true. You know, if we find ourselves saying things like, I know the Bible says not to do this, but you know what? Times are hard. God will understand. Or God doesn't mean this now. You know, God knows my heart. Well, he sure does know your heart. <laughs> and that's why he told the prophet Jeremiah about our hearts. He said the hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. And it was as true in Jeremiah's time as it is now. I'm really glad you said all that, Rose, because it needs to be said. You know, there's a good reason to be God glorifying by seeking his wisdom in the Bible and through prayer before we make decisions. And it's good to let others know that we care about what God says regarding a matter. If we let unbelievers know, 
I can't answer that until I, you know, look into it a little bit more and I pray about it, or I can't do this until I pray about it. It just lets others know that you're considering what God thinks is very important. Absolutely. Titus 2, 7 and 8 says, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The outside world's watching. Waiting for us to slip up. And they love it when we do. Yes. They really, really love it when we do. Even our own family and friends that aren't saved love it when we do. Yes. And 1 Peter 2.12 says, continue to live such upright lives among the Gentiles. And that meant unbelievers when he wrote that. That when they slander you as practicers of evil, they may see your good actions and glorify God when he visits them. So by living according to God's wisdom, we're glorifying him. And someday, even the unbelievers will too, because they're all going to bow the knee. Yes, they are. And another seemingly obvious attribute, but one that's not always practiced, is that God is true. You know, we glorify God when we're hungry for truth, for God's truth. Jesus is the manifestation of God's word. You glorify God when you glorify his word and when you want to hear his word taught, when you want to delve into the Bible to read and study. That's glorifying to God. You know, we also glorify him on the opposite side when we stand against false teaching in the church, in Bible study, wherever we are. We glorify God when we can answer unbelievers who disparage God's word. And we're to answer with God's word, not answer the way some of us might like to. Unbelievers who disparage God's word, that's an affront to God. That's mocking God. So how do we react to that? Like we said, there's a God-glorifying way and an unglorifying way. If they question how was the Bible put together, or they ask with disdain why the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs, Are we prepared to give an answer, a biblical answer? Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And that's where we have to make sure that we're doing it all in love. When the world tries to subvert what God says so that they can live however they want, but still try to call themselves Christians, do we lovingly point them to the truth? It's God-glorifying if we do, even though we'll be called judgmental and all sorts of other things. And speaking of love, God is love. He's loving and he's good and he's kind. Now, think about that. Don't you enjoy, Rose, spending time with people who are loving and good and kind? I I do. I think we do. You know, I don't want to spend time with somebody that's going to beat me up. We glorify God when we show that we enjoy spending time with him. When we enjoy him, how do we do that? So to get us thinking here, I'm going to ask some questions in the negative. And I just want to, I just want us to think about them. How do we talk about going to church? Are we like, I got to go to church. What about when others want us to do something else on a Sunday morning? What's our response? And I don't want to be legalistic about this. 
I don't want to be legalistic about it at all, but I, I think it's good to check ourselves on how easy we're, we are to blow off church in favor of doing other things. And I, like I said, I don't want to be legalistic about it, but you know, we're used to Sunday morning being that time when we can be fellowship with other believers and hear the sermon and stuff like that. So it is important, even though, you know, Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And, you know, there's lots of other points that we've made in other studies and stuff about it, but it's something to think about. Absolutely. And you're right. It's not a legalism thing. I mean, there are good reasons. Obviously, if you're very sick, if you have a child who's sick, or if you have a friend who's in desperate need of your help, I mean, there are legitimate reasons why we might not go on a Sunday morning, but that's not usually the case. Usually the case is our kids have a game, or like you said, Chris, someone's planned something for a Sunday morning, or maybe it's that we're tired and we just want to sleep in. And you know, COVID has not helped this. People have gotten used to sitting on their couch in their pajamas, watching church, and it's become a problem. It no, certainly has for lots of churches. Yes, it has for lots of churches. But you know what? If you don't have a legitimate reason, and they are few and far between, you need to really think about what you think about church and how important it is to you. You know, when unbelievers plan an event, you can easily just say, I'll be there after church when we have visitors staying at our house, even if it's family. And maybe they don't want to go to church. We certainly invite them. But if they don't want to go, we should still go and say, okay, we'll be home after church. We need to show people that it's important to us. It needs to be important to us. It's not just for show. It's because it needs to be. You know, when we say to someone, it's Sunday morning and we have church, is it a statement like, oh, woe is me, I have church, you know, kind of like Eeyore. Or do we say something like, I have church, I'm going to go see my brothers and sisters in Christ and, you know, hear a sermon and fellowship with people and worship God. And we don't need to say all those things, but that should be our attitude. It should be something we don't want to miss out on. You know, how would we respond if it meant missing out hanging with our best friends? Like you said, Chris, it's not a legalistic argument, but it's a good checkup to think through these things. Are we glorifying God in how we respond to church, our attitude about church. Yeah, and I it starts in the heart and even our attitude about it, even if we correct these things, you know, isn't good either. We really should put a priority on it because like you said, it's our time to go fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And people don't think enough about that. Yes. And they, they really, a lot of times just think about it inwardly for themselves, I think. And we don't always think about the, the rest of the body that we're supposed to go and worship with. And they're important. Yes. They're important to God. They're supposed to be important to us. And we, I think a lot of times, and I'm just going to say this because I think it's true. I think a lot of times people think the church should be more concerned with unbelievers out in the world than with people that are in their church yeah. that are saved and, or, you know, that they believe are saved. That whole seeker sensitive movement became big in the 70s and 80s. And there are a lot of churches that adhere to that. Yep. And it's not the way to go. It's no. not the way to go. You, you know, we are supposed to care for the body at least and probably more than right. unbelievers. We but. certainly welcome visitors and sure. an unbeliever if they come into church. Absolutely. But you're right. Church is built around the body of believers. And it's important. Yes. So... 
All right. Just some things to think through. Like I said, we don't want to be legalistic, but we do have to check ourselves and our attitude about it. So the next attribute we're going to look is look at is really two. uh, God is merciful and long suffering. Thankfully, if we're believers, we've realized that we are sinners who need to be reconciled to our perfectly holy God. And we've repented and we've confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. Confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior is glorifying to God, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20, where he says that Jesus is, and, and here's the verse, fulfillment of God's promises and through Christ, our amen, which means, yes, ascends to God for his glory. We glorify God when we confess him to others, too. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says that God has highly exalted him, meaning Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's honoring of God when we confess our faith so that others hear and believe, because then they're going to bring glory to God by coming under his rule and authority. And that's something we don't really think about much. We think about people uh, coming to know the Lord and we think about them being saved from hell. But there's an important aspect that, you know, when we share the gospel and someone's saved through our sharing, it's God letting us be a part of bringing people under his rule and authority, which is how we should be. And We also glorify God's long suffering and patience with sinners when we have that same patience with them also, especially if they've treated us badly. You know, we only need to look at the cross to be reminded of our life before we were saved and how much we've been forgiven. When we continue to pray for the Holy Spirit to regenerate the hearts of our family and friends, desiring that they come to faith and repent, that's glorifying to God too. Absolutely. And just I want to make a note because a lot of people criticize reformed people because they say, well, then why do you even pray for someone's salvation since it's all in God's hand? Number one, we're commanded to pray. Number two, we have no idea who the Holy Spirit is going to regenerate. Of course, we're going to pray for those around us who are unbelievers. That is right. And that is God glorifying to do that. Right. God uses our prayers as part of the means to the ends. He's sovereign over all the means to all the ends, but we still have our responsibilities down here that we're supposed to do. And one of them is prayer. Absolutely. And God is merciful and long suffering, but he's also just, you know, we give glory to God when we respond in faith and repentance. Our life should be lived in a state of repentance. When we sin, we should acknowledge it ask for forgiveness of it, and trust in faith that we're forgiven. And then we can put it behind us, turn towards God, and move forward. That's God glorifying. Sin has to be punished. But if you're a believer, your debt's been paid already by Jesus. It was God's will to crush Jesus in place of crushing you, if you belong to him. And that's a sobering thing to think about. And that should certainly make us want to repent. Mm. Jesus said in Luke 10, 16, whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me, meaning God the Father. Likewise, John 5, 23 says, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And one more, 1 John 2, 23 says, whoever denies the son does not have the father, 
but whoever confesses the son has the father as well. You can't give glory to God without having faith in Jesus. You know, lots of other religions claim they worship a God. They'll liken it to our God. For example, Muslims say Allah is like our God, but they're not the same God. And Muslims, as well as Jews and others, don't worship Jesus. And without worshiping Jesus, they aren't honoring and glorifying God. And they're not saved. No, they're not. Only believers glorify God. Unbelievers do not glorify God, not even when they're doing good deeds, for instance. Paul makes it clear in Romans 1 that everyone knows about God. Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. These people know about God. Everyone knows about God. But as Paul says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress that truth. And the truth is the gospel message. And we should certainly not suppress that. In fact, we should be proclaiming it as often as we can because God is glorified when we're proclaiming his truth. But on the other side, it opens us up to reproach, as many of us may already know. John MacArthur said, we live in a day when everybody wants to make Christianity easy. The Bible always makes it hard. We live in a day when everyone wants to make Christians lovable. God wants to make Christians reproachable. Why? Because they're confronted because they confront the system. They fight the system. They antagonize the system. You see, Christianity must be so distinct that it points out sin before it brings the remedy. End of quote. And I can hear his voice saying that, <laughs> but he's absolutely right. We have to point out sin before we can point people to the remedy. People that don't know they need a remedy aren't going to accept it if they That's right. don't think they need it. And not pointing out sin is not the complete gospel message. That's exactly right. The world is going to reproach us. They're going to say things like, you know, Jesus said, don't judge. Judge not and you will not be judged. And Jesus did say that in Luke 6, 37, but they're taking it totally out of context. Yeah. Jesus is our ultimate example of being God-glorifying, and he pointed out sin. As John MacArthur said, we have to point out sin before we bring the remedy. So, you know, are we going to keep beating around the bush? Are we deceiving ourselves because these people seem nice? There's lots of really nice people in the world that we're friends with and family with. It doesn't matter. We have to tell them the gospel. It doesn't matter how good or kind or nice they seem from a human standpoint. God's not measuring by a human standpoint. He's measuring by his perfect holiness. It's God glorifying to spread the gospel to everybody. That's right. I mean, think of it this way. If a doctor tells you, hey, I want you to start on chemotherapy without ever telling you you have cancer, why would you ever do that? You know, yeah. and it's the same with the gospel message. If you don't know you're a sinner, you can't possibly understand that you need the remedy for it. Nope. And Chris, back to what you said about people seem nice. You know, Betty White died a few weeks ago. She looked like someone's kindly old grandmother. She had a beautiful smile. She made a lot of us laugh over the years. She was diligent in her pursuit of animal rights. 
And we never want to presume anyone's salvation status because that's up to God. God can do anything in the last nanoseconds of someone's life, and he's the only one who knows a person's heart. But based on her stated beliefs and her association with the Unity Church during the last part of her life, it would appear that she wasn't a believer. It's God glorifying to proclaim the name of the Lord to everyone. You know, like the quote from John MacArthur, we need to tell them about God's holiness and his justice so that they see they need the remedy for their sin dilemma. Absolutely. And that leads us to our last attribute that we're going to talk about today. And it's one that you just mentioned, and that is God is holy. Holiness isn't just one attribute of God. It permeates every single other thing about him. He is holy, 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 perfectly holy. It's the only attribute mentioned three times in a row in scripture. Yep. Yep. And the best way to glorify God and his holiness is to imitate him. God tells us in several verses, probably many, I shouldn't even use the word several, be holy. He said, be holy for I am holy three times in Leviticus 20 alone. (laughs) Holiness is hatred of sin and separation from sin. So how much do we hate the sin of others? How much do we hate our own sin? Are we willing to do whatever it takes to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to mortify our sin? Good questions to ask. And I'm guessing it's probably easier to hate the sin of others than it is to hate our own sin, but we need yeah, to do it. It definitely is. According to John 14, 31, Jesus said he did what the father commanded so that the world may know that I love the father. Believers need to do likewise. And that's not always going to be easy. In fact, most times it isn't. You know, we started out talking about the cross and the idea that we need to long to look at the cross. We should long to look at the cross. We should long to look at our own salvation. Let's try to do that. Let's let it spur us on to glorifying God, the one who sent his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity to earth to die for us. Jesus humbled himself and came to earth as a baby to take our punishment. And the Holy Spirit regenerated our dead, stony, God-hating hearts So that everyone who the father chose to save before the world was even created would believe and trust in what Jesus did. And the spirit lives in us today as we walk through life, however we're living it at the moment. So stop and think about the cross deeply and often. Our memory verse this week is going to be 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's a wonderful verse. We don't like life verses, but that is certainly one you can take and live by. Yes. You know, as you said earlier, Rose, if it was Jesus's aim to glorify the Father, as we see when he prayed, Father, glorify thy name, it should be our aim too. Absolutely. So we challenge you this week as we continue in our transformation journey to think on the attributes of God. Think on them deeply. Think on them often. Make an intentional effort to glorify him in his attributes. You know, like you said, Chris, transformation's hard work. So we need to put the work into making sure that our view of God is a biblical view of God, because everything begins and ends with our view of God. And as always, to God be the glory. Amen. Have a blessed day, everybody. 